Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. Today's Issues Up Close episode focuses on the forthcoming special issue on climate change and terrorism. TPV editor Max Taylor discusses three of the 10 papers of the special issue with guests Andrew Silk from Cranfield University, Brian Hughes from the American University, Amanath Amaransingham from Queen's University and Ashton Kingdon from the University of Southampton. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thank you for joining us on this uh, TPV podcast. Um, the editors have, over the years, uh, developed um, special issues, uh, picking up on things that seem to be important or things that might in the future be important. And it's that latter future-looking um, issues that we've tried to pick up on in this uh, special issue on climate change. And I'm delighted to be able to have a conversation with one of the editors of the special issue, Andrew Silk from University of Cranfield, uh, and also uh, with two um, contributors to two of the papers, uh, Brian Hughes and Amarath Amaran Singham, uh, from uh, American University and University of Toronto, Queen's University of Toronto, and also Ashton Kingdon from the University of Southampton, both of whom have written uh, individual papers, and we'll come to those in a moment. So what I'd like to do, first of all, Andrew, if I may, is start off with a, a few comments from yourself, really. Where do you, summarise what you think the issues are in the area of climate change and terrorism? Yeah, it, it, I mean, climate change is a big beast. Uh, it, it, it's, it's causing a whole host of problems um, uh, at a global level. And these are problems which are set to get worse um, with, with every passing year. And I think one, one, of the, one of the reasons which drew my attention to climate change uh, and terrorism was in thinking about uh, the future of terrorism. Uh, and it's a question that gets asked a lot. What, what shape is terrorism going to take in, 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 in the next few, few years, the next few decades, potentially even longer term? Um, and you know, this kind of ties into the, you know, the well-worn uh, debate around the fifth wave. You know, we're, we're all familiar with Rappaport's uh, you know, you know, great four-wave theory that everyone knows about. Um, uh, and we love talking about it. It's probably the most influential theory in terrorism studies today. Um, and the big question, of course, is what's the fifth wave going to be? Um, what will that look like and what will drive it? And there's been a lot of attention, I think, recently on, on right wing and far right and whether that's going to um, uh, coalesce around, around the fifth wave. And that always struck me as being, being perhaps not, not particularly likely. Um, my sense was that it would be somewhere else. Uh, and if you're thinking in terms of what else that might be, then one of the elements of the, of the four-wave theory that always struck me as being uh, as being among its most compelling features was this, this idea that terrorism was affected by big geopolitical processes, that the big beasts in the in the wider environment had an impact on terrorism. Um, sometimes it, it, it was it took a while for that impact to to realise itself, but. It was things like um, growing levels of education, rise of the middle class, the collapse of the European um, um, uh, colonial empires, the impact of World War II, um, the Cold War. These big beasts had an impact. Um, and that for me then raised the question, for the 21st century, what is what are the big beasts going to be? And I, and I think it stood out for me that climate change was going to be an extremely big beast. And then... Having thought about that, the question became, how could climate change have an impact on terrorism? In what ways? Uh, would it be direct? Would it be indirect? 
And I felt these were important questions. And I think that's where the special issue um, emerges from. And it's a really eclectic mix of papers which look at this from a, a range of different perspectives, um, uh, some of which we, you know, we'll be able to talk about in more detail here. But I think it reflected that this is a, is a, a complex issue um, that's not going to be resolved neatly and easily but I think it is going to be an issue we are going to be grappling with for the, for the coming decades. Um, and we will still be talking about climate change and terrorism, not just next year and not just in the next decade, but in the next 40, 50, 60, 70 years. This is this is going to be an issue that we're, um, is going to live with us uh, for a very, very long time indeed. I think you're right. And uh, I found the papers really interesting, quite stimulating, lots of, lots of new ideas, lots of different ideas. Um, just to kind of go through some uh, some of these bigger issues, just to start with, and, and, and try and tease out a bit more about them. Um, one of the things that struck me when you made reference to um, David Rappaport's work in the, your introduction, and just now, um, was reference to the wave theory and so on. Not everybody would necessarily agree that it's 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 um, all embracing, but nonetheless, it is important and influential. If this is the fifth wave, though, it's very different, isn't it, from David's waves, because they're all essentially social in character in some way. Um, uh, that matters, I think, in that that also then gives you a clue as to what you might do about it, because you know the remedies are going to lie, if indeed it's to do with religion, well, then maybe you look at religion or whatever. Um, but this isn't social, it's physical. Um, and I wonder, well, if that is the case, what, what are the implications of that for policy initiatives in terms of managing terrorism? Do we just think, of, do we need to think about it in a different way? Or are we really just dealing with something that actually was always there in the background? Uh, because, you know, migration and so on. Uh, is an element of religious terrorism as much as anything else, I guess. So is climate change a background factor just influencing what we already have? Or is it something new? It, I mean, th these are you know critical questions for this because um, to a degree, can we do anything? Is almost uh, question number one. Are, are we doomed to simply see this problem gradually getting worse? as the century progresses, and there's very, very little that we can do to actually um, to mitigate it. Um, or are there ways in which we can mitigate? Now, I think at one level, we don't know enough right now. Um, there are a lot of question marks over how exactly climate change has an impact on terrorism. And there's even a debate about whether we should consider climate change to be a root cause of, of terrorism or not, or whether it's more effective to see climate change as being a, 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 a new factor on the playing field that is exacerbating existing causes of terrorism, so that it is essentially making them worse, making them have more of an impact than they would have otherwise. And I think that's a, that's a debate that's worth, worth having. I don't think we have the answers to those types of questions just yet. And I think my own feeling is that climate change change's big impact is will will be true how it has an impact on existing causes of terrorism and um, how it makes them bite harder than they currently do whether that's going to be true things like um uh, you know the impact on migration the impact on um, um you know displaced um, uh, communities um you know one name uh, you know i suggested in the book was you know rather than you know the climate change wave in terms of the fifth wave it would be the hunger wave um because of the impact on 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 you know uh, the world in terms of um, uh, population, food supply, um, you know critical resources, a whole range of other things of climate change coming in and having a really really nasty impact on that. Um, so I don't think we've got a clear answer, and I think that that the fact that we don't have a clear answer right now um, is also part of the agenda for the special issue. It was recognizing that here's an issue we think it's important. Uh, we don't have all the answers, uh, but we would certainly like to encourage people to start thinking about this in their research um, and in their thinking around terrorism and counterterrorism. Um, 
but it's very, very early days. We see this as being one of the, the initial pushes to get the research and to get the debate going um, so that we can have better answers to this in five, ten years' time. But at the moment, it's really, really early days. Uh, and, and we wanted to push it on a bit from that. I, I, I understand that, and I think that's, that's all very true. Um, but what sh are we going to be faced then, do you think, are we going to be faced with suddenly something that's different or a slow process of exaggerated, increased influence? Um, I mean, we're already seeing this with water. Uh, or access to water as being one of the one of the factors that um, is driving political violence. Now, that also raises another issue as well, of course. Are we really going to be concerning ourselves so much with terrorism, or are we actually really going to have to be worrying a lot more about kinds of political violence of which terrorism might be one element? Yeah. Um, where would you sit in these things, Andrew? Uh, yeah, I, I think, and I mean, you know, for, for a guy trying to sell a special issue on climate change and terrorism, you know, I probably should stop talking now, but I think terrorism is going to be among the least of the problems we're going to have in terms of climate change. It's going to have really nasty impacts uh, in terms of war, famine, drought, massive displacement, and terrorism is only going to be one of the problems that this is going to cause. And it's not going to be the most serious of the problems that this is going to cause, but it is going to be one. Um, and because we're all interested in terrorism, we're all interested in understanding that if this is going to become a significant factor, then it's worth us starting to think about it. But it's not going to be, and you know, I'll be upfront about it, this is not going to be climate change's you know, most harmful impact. That's going to lie elsewhere. But we also shouldn't um, um, you know, kid ourselves that climate change isn't going to, to uh, be a factor in this arena, because it is. It already has been. Uh, and it already has had an impact on a number of conflicts across the world. And, and that impact is likely to grow rather than diminish. I think you're probably right. I'm just, again, just thinking about role of water uh, and management of water. I mean, historically, building dams has been a source of aggravation. And that's just going to become more and more of an issue, isn't it, as water sources either dry up or, or exceed or flood, because it seems to be likely to get both. Um, just to push you on, though, kind of finally, just to push you on um, a point that you, you make, which I think is a very interesting one, of what are the kind of potential policy responses um, that, that we might start to ask our policymakers to think about? Um, and, and you draw, you, you make an interest, I think, a very interesting um, point about whether or not we should be looking at mitigation of effects or adaptation to effects. And would you talk a little bit more about that and what that might mean? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I'm a bit of a pessimist when it comes to climate change. Um, and, and kind of we're, we're looking at all of the red lines that you know, the, the scientific uh, community are warning we shouldn't pass and they're kind of whizzing by us um, on, a, on an annual basis. And it's, the situation is, is it's not particularly encouraging. And I, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I'm pretty sure we're, we're going to end the century um, uh, quite a few degrees hotter than, than, than we entered it. Um, and in that type of an environment, then I think we're talking about adaptation rather than prevention. Um, we're talking about preparing for the impact of climate change rather than what can we do to stop this from happening. I think it's going to happen. Uh, and I think it's going to, it's, it's impact is going to, is going to deepen. So it's, it, it's a case for me of thinking then about mitigation and adaptation. It's about adapting to a new world in which this is happening. I think the link between terrorism and climate change is yet another reason why climate change is bad and we should do what we can to, to stop it. It's very far from being the most important reason. Um, but I'm not impressed with the with the with the overall approach to trying to tackle climate change so far. I don't think I don't think we're there. Uh, I think we're quite a, a long way from being there. And as a result, we have to assume that the impact is going to grow at least for the next few decades and probably longer. Yeah. Just pessimistically. Oh, I agree. But there you go. Being pessimistic is just 
part of life, isn't it, these days, I think. Okay, look, what I suggest we do now is we just kind of move on a little bit and talk to our colleagues who've written specific papers. And then, Andrew, if you can just come back and pick up um, at the end of this on, on some of these issues a little bit more. And maybe um, just to kick that off, um, I could uh, direct a few questions to Brian and Amarnath. Um, they have both written paper on ecofascism and examination of the far right ecology nexus in the online space. Um, I, th I thought a really interesting paper, may I say, um, bringing together, again, inevitably, I guess, but interestingly, online activity and um, climate change and all, you know, another way of drawing on what are clearly absolutely critical issues. So, Brian, or I don't know how you want to answer this, Brian, or Amrath, whoever, tell us first of all what ecofascism is and why should we be worried about it? Well, I think uh, this is Brian. Uh, th thanks, Max, uh, for having, having me. Um, I think one of the questions we were trying to answer in this uh, paper was uh, what, what is ecofascism? That very definitional question. Uh, it's a vague concept. Um, it's not definitionally very solid. Um, and we wanted to draw on the existing literature to try to um, provide some solidity to answer that question. Uh, we start um, by building off of uh, some of the work of Balsa Labarda, uh, who criticizes the use of the term ecofascism as uh, vague and points out that uh, far-right ecologism, that is the sort of actual, actually existing far-right interactions with ecology, uh, tend to be um, what you'd expect in the sense that they, uh, they, they aren't very good at preserving um, ecological integrity. Uh, and um, we took his argument seriously uh, because we found it convincing, but um, we weren't ready to jettison the concept or the term ecofascism entirely. So the question that we asked ourselves uh, was, well, if not actual policy, um, then what is ecofascism? And I think that the, uh, the answer that we settled on uh, was that ecofascism should be thought of as something that exists in um, the imaginary register. It's a, uh, it's a way of thinking and telling stories and um, a form of mysticism and anti-humanism that, as Labarda points out, uh, is very bad when it comes to uh, building policy and implementing environmental policy at the level of nation states. But what it is great at is uh, creating art, uh, creating imagery, um, creating mobilizing concepts that can inspire people uh, to acts of uh, violent uh, terrorism. Uh, only this past weekend uh, in Buffalo, New York, uh, we saw a shooter um, uh, kill uh, 10 to 13 people. And partly uh, his, uh, among his motives, uh, self-professed was eco-fascism. I was inevitably going to actually ask you about that. So maybe you could just expand a little bit on that, given that it's, uh, this will be heard across this podcast, one hopes will be heard long after these events. But um, on the 15th of May uh, was a very major event in Buffalo. And maybe you'd like to reflect a little bit on that as well for people. Sure. Uh, well, um, in a uh, predominantly African-American neighborhood uh, at a, um, a big box uh, retail store, uh, a white 18-year-old uh, man uh, with um, military-style weapons and um, body armor uh, entered into the store and opened fire. Um, he killed um, men, women, and um, I mean... Absolutely innocent, innocent people uh, doing their weekend grocery shopping. Uh, he left behind uh, a manifesto and a rather extensive online footprint. Um, in some ways, it's a very textbook case of the young contemporary extreme right. Uh, one of the, the key motivating concepts that he cited was the great replacement theory. Um, I think most listeners of this podcast will already be familiar uh, with what that means. But I think it's interesting in light of this issue uh, 
that is the this this special issue of TPV um, to uh, to read the Great Replacement Theory alongside uh, the pressures of climate change um, as climate change increases uh, flows of migration. Uh, conspiracy theories uh, like the Great Replacement uh, are likely to become more salient. I think they already are. Why, why would he? Why, why would this be an example of ecofascism as opposed to some other way of categorizing it? Well, I don't. Amar, I'm sorry. Do you want to take that one? Yeah. No, I think. Um... One of the ways to understand it, because it, it, if you read his 589-page, you know, Discord diary, which um, is is annoying reading on a good day, but I think part 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 of what is quite clear from the manifesto and the Discord diary is that it's not it's never one thing, right? Um, it's never one thing that's motivating him. He mentions uh, a whole host of things that are part of uh, part of his worldview. The Great Replacement Theory, he links two uh, notions of ecofascism through this idea that you know racial strength and uh, the vitality of the land are basically the same thing, right? It's that it, 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 what aspect, what is being replaced uh, through things like immigration, uh, through, uh, you know, the black population in the U.S., he feels is is not the kind of purity of the land, but also the purity of the of the race, right? This idea of blood and soil. Um, and so it, it is very much kind of integrated um, into great replacement theory for a lot of these attackers that we've seen. Uh, it's not one or the other. It's, it's kind of... Um, it's an aspect of a kind of holistic worldview, I would say. What, what I find difficult, I am not, not sufficiently familiar clearly with, with all the issues involved, but one of the things I find difficult to see is how, where, where does this fit into what we see, certainly in Europe as growing, and in America, I guess, growing right-wing influences, growing right-wing political influence that, doesn't necessarily express itself in terms of political violence, but clearly sits somewhere in the background as perhaps an ideology or perhaps a contributing factor to something. How do we distinguish between them? Or are they really just aspects of the same essence? I mean, I think I, I think the idea is becoming more and more mainstream. I mean, it, it, the 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 notion of great replacement, even if it's not expressed in those words exactly, is very much embedded in far right ideology going back decades. Um, in in 2011, you have this book by Renaud Camus, a kind of French thinker in quotes, um, uh, who who wrote this book called The Great Replacement in French. It got eventually translated in shorter form and in YouTube videos to, uh, to English um, and becomes very uh, kind of integrated into this much older movement called Generation Identity, right? And, and, and part of how that plays out in Europe is interesting because it's almost a direct response to the Syrian migrant crisis um, and, and this idea that hordes of Muslims are, uh, uh, you know, unintegratable, unassimilating Muslims are going to take over uh, pure Western culture. So what's interesting about the Buffalo attack also, and, and the same thing with uh, the El Paso shooting uh, before that, is that these guys are part of these transnational worldviews, but they kind of manifest themselves domestically in different ways, right? So in Europe, it's always often been anti-Muslim, anti-refugee, anti-immigrant. Uh, with the Buffalo shooting, it's anti-black racism, right? And and but it's it's the same kind of broader idea that depending on your local uh, grievance, I guess, it manifests manifests differently. Um, all of that, and, and there's been a lot of talk recently about the mainstreaming of some of these ideas, which I think is a major concern and, and is very much happening, you know, especially post-Trump, I would say, in, in the U.S. anyway, and, and, and post a lot of these politicians in Europe. Um, even if it's not expressed in those words exactly, it's this idea of white people being in danger, Western culture being in danger, uh, make America great again, right? Um, it, it's kind of uh, echoes of the same phenomenon that something uh, pure at the core of Western identity or American identity is being eroded somehow, often through a malevolent plot by a secret cabal of actors, often Jews, right? And so um, uh, I, th I think the same narrative tends to show up uh, in different contexts and different ways, but it is part of this broader uh, broader worldview that, that's becoming more mainstream by the day. And therefore, I take it we'd see climate change as being a contributory factor, but we wouldn't necessarily see it as a causal factor in this thing, would we? Brian, do you want to? 
Uh, yeah, I would say it's a contributing factor. Um, uh, maybe increasingly necessary, but um, probably never sufficient in and of itself, at least not in the short term. Uh, you know, I think uh, Andrew mentioned that we're going to be uh, leaving this century uh, quite a few degrees hotter uh, than we came into it. I think at that point, you might see the, the eco-fascist imagination as um, a motivation that's that's both necessary and sufficient. Yeah. And we've um, seen we, we, we've seen in the past, of course, you know, terrorism linked to these kinds of movements. I mean, the Earth Liberation Front, the Animal Liberation Front, Earth First, et cetera. And so it, and those goes back. Those go back to the 70s. Um, so this idea that the Earth is in danger has always mobilized uh kind of violent protectionist impulses in, in, in some individuals. Um, what I think is unique about ecofascism is how much it's uh, the, the, the land is racialized, right, which we haven't necessarily seen in, with other movements. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, it'll be a contributing factor. How that actually plays out will be interesting to see. Um, but I think if, if COVID taught us anything, you know, a global crisis does have consequences, right? does have consequences for extremism. And so um, what that looks like in particular with, with kind of a broad uh, climate crisis, I think is up for grabs, but um, you can almost bet your house that there's going to be some sort of extremist response, conspiratorial response, misinformation, disinformation, pulling at the, the fault lines that, that could tear our societies apart. We, we saw that for two years. Um, so I, I don't I don't suspect that another global crisis, whatever it might be, or you know, climate crisis, another pandemic, um, won't have the same response. I think you're right. I think you've you've identified something which um, terrorism scholars certainly are going to have to keep their eye on and look at very carefully for the future. It seems to me. Uh, I'm going to move on now to Ashton uh, and really just. Uh, engage a little bit and talk a little bit around her the paper she was wrote um, with Bryony Gray, um, both from University of Southampton. The paper title is The Class Conflict Rise When You Turn Up the Heat, an Interdisciplinary Examination of the Relationship between Climate Change and Left-Wing Terrorist Recruitment. Um, I've never really thought about heat and terrorist recruitment before, but it's an interesting idea, isn't it? That was just a play on words. Um, <laughs> can I add to what they were talking about before, just quickly, because I found your paper, what you're doing for your paper really interesting. I know I'm here to talk about the far sort of extreme left, but I did spend four years undercover looking at far right subcultures online. And I think with the eco-fascist communities, um, a lot of this manifested during coronavirus and the lockdowns. and people were very concerned about the fact we were running out of resources and certainly as I was tracking that over time it's very easy to get into conversations about concerns about the environment and the fact that we're running out of resources and then tipping into kind of neo-Malthusian ideas and ideologies and then that's stemming into eco-fascism and I think that there's a blurring of boundaries between the fringe and the mainstream that is very risky and that's what I personally focus on and think in terms of extremism in the future might become, you know, more of an issue. So I'm really yeah. excited to read your paper, actually, and and see what you talk about. But yes, apologies for that digression. Um, yeah, so Bryony and I look at um, left wing terrorist recruitment. Um, we are interdisciplinary. So she is an expert in disaster management and I bring the sort of terrorism studies. And we look at the impacts of climate change um, in terms of them creating global humanitarian crises. So things like growing populations, increasingly unstable political structures, more and more competition over depleting resources and the ways in which this will generate more insecurity and the ways in which different terrorist organisations use the environment as a weapon of war and exploit the strains and grievances that are exacerbated by climate change to increase support, aid their recruitment strategies and incite violence. So we specifically look at this kind of climate conflict phenomenon when resources serve as targets and weapons during conflicts. And we look at climate change as a threat multiplier or accelerator. So even when there's not a direct link between climate change and terrorism, 
some of the wider challenges, so like poverty, inequality, marginalizations, weak, crumbling governments can provide kind of fertile grounds for non-state armed groups to thrive. So we've looked at different case studies. We generally have like a country and a group or a um, phenomenon. So let me look at water weaponization in Iraq and Syria, um, drought and famine in Somalia, rising sea levels in Pakistan, um, and the ways in which these disasters intersect with migration and constantly feel the rise of the far right as well. And I'm sure that um, they'll be touched upon in this special issue as well, things like radical right populist parties, green nationalism, eco-fascism. But this paper, yeah, um, specifically looks at left wing terrorist recruitment. And it's my first paper ever. So it's definitely going to be on a mug somewhere, the abstract for this. It's very exciting for me to have my first ever journal. Oh, very good one. Well, very pleased that we've been able to do that. We don't often get that sort of it's very, very exciting so very, me. Very, well, we're delighted and excited to have it as well. It's a very good paper and it's oh, very interesting. You. you pick up um, on something or you start off in terms of the background discussion that you offer um, developing something that Andrew spoke about, which is David Rappaport. <laughs> oh, the waves, the good old yeah. waves. Uh, I mean, do you... How 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 would you see this issue fitting into that kind of thinking, that kind of big story thinking? Yeah, I love this question because it's one I always set to my students, like, what's the fifth wave? What ideas do we have? So my initial thinking, I agree with the, the complexities around it being a far right, that being a new wave and where you would even date that wave from if it was going to be a wave, if you'd go from kind of like 2011 or if you'd go from more recently. So I uh, I toss and turn between like environmentalism as a wave in, encompassing eco-fascism and kind of climate change issues or autonomous autonomous weapons or something like that. I'm, I'm still kind of the AI, that kind of zone is something that I'm also interested in. Like I do work around like the quantum internet and the potential for that to cause issues in the future. So, yeah, I think that there is possibility for climate change. But I talk about um, the wave theory in terms of talking about left wing terrorism as it was actually a big issue um, a few decades ago. And it hasn't actually completely gone away, which, you know, a lot of a lot of the issues have been eclipsed by kind of radical jihadist terrorism and the far right. And it, there is still an issue with it. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. It, it, I'm not that. I'm not that convinced that these labels are always very helpful. I think there's a, an awful lot of overlap between the different forces that drive people to do things. So left and right doesn't always seems to me make a great deal of sense. But as as a modest psychologist, I find it sometimes really difficult to understand how these big pressures influence little people doing things. And one of the striking things about the um, climate change issue of the, the sort of and, and the eco-fascism as well, is we seem to be talking largely about individuals rather than big movements, don't we? Or have I got that wrong? I think it's a combination of both. So I've certainly seen Right. I'm sure that the guys will know more about this in their paper, but I've certainly seen people capitalise on climate change, different parties um, and different factions of it to gain support. In terms of the left wing stuff, so we look at three countries and groups. So we look at um, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, Shining Path in Peru and then Naxalism in India. And it is very much the... Um, the climate change creating the environment where people are distrusting the government and the climate change exacerbates the instability, access to resources, and then terrorist organisations will use this to aid their recruitment as not only just taking control of resources and then using that as leverage, but also to make themselves seem that they're more capable of dealing with climate crises than their actual government, which then bolsters support for them. So I, I have, yeah, we talk about it a lot in the paper, the ways in which it's aided the recruitment specifically to different organisations. But you see it all over with um, 
when we did Somalia, Al-Shabaab, for example, in the areas that they control, they kind of like completely um, ban plastic and plastic bags and things as ways to make them seem like they are better able to deal and care more about the environment than the, the governments in those countries. So I think that's quite an interesting thing, particularly when left wing, these left wing groups already thrive off of disdain of the government and the way they've been treated. And a lot of it comes down to like conflicts over land, land distribution, land inequality, the ways in which terrorist organisations can actually prevent um, climate change issues. So we talk in our paper about deforestation and FARC and the ways in which they actually limited deforestation and logging in the terrain that they were in control of and after the peace deal they lost control of all of that area and deforestation increased massively massively increasing climate change and then things like um illegal gold mining and things so there's an interesting overlap for sure yeah but the, i i thought that your your comments on FARC were interesting but have we then as a result of FARC's loss of control and loss of environmental control are we seeing a, a, a response in terms of political violence or is it just going some, in some other direction? In other words, FARC's gone away. What's replacing <laughs> FARC in that role? Well, yeah, we talk a bit about the fact that there's still kind of ex-FARC mafia, they call themselves, in, in the area. But it'd be interesting to see now they've been declassified, actually. And we wrote the paper before that had happened. Um, <laughs> but now, now that's happened, it'd be interesting to see um, how it goes. But certainly in terms of climate change I mean Bryony she's an expert in this area and she she does all the kind of future forecasting of climate models and predictions and it's accelerating at a rate that that is much higher than previously thought so I'm a pessimistic person so I imagine it's going to get a lot worse in those areas. So are we seeing uh, I, I, you, what you're saying then is that there is a lag between these environmental changes, very negative environmental changes, and the expression of this in terms of some uh, instrumental political violence. Is that right? Have I understood you correctly? Yeah, I think one of the things that concerns us is that in these countries, there are multi-stakeholder and like multi-country agreements that need to be made about the depleting resources. And a lot of the time there's conflict between the countries, which means that no one can agree and people are kind of out for themselves. And I think that this is what we kind of envision might be something that crops up in the future as a potential issue. Um, but our focus in the paper was really on the ways in which um, it aids the recruitment rather than the acts. So I'm sure that it's probably going to be a risk in the future. But it'd be interesting to see, particularly with FARC, now they've been declassified, if there's still support for them, particularly as the climate issues worsen. Great. Oh, Amman's got his hand up. <laughs> you want to say something? Yeah. Sorry, I thought that's how we get our attention these days. <laughs> no, you do. I'm not looking at it, but go ahead. <laughs> no, I, th I think what I mean, what Ashton's saying is hugely important. And I think going back to the earlier conversation as well, um, one of the things I think complicates this conversation around climate change is this massive debate in global development studies around uh, environmentalism of the rich versus environmentalism of the poor, right? And environmentalism of the rich, where what we do basically is, you know, we change our fluorescent light bulbs and we drive electric cars and, and, and that's pretty much it. Um, whereas if you look at some of the, and, and this goes back to Ashton's um, uh, argument is, is, is if you look at some of the ways in which climate change has produced protest movements and uh, things like that in other parts of the world, you know, leather production in Bangladesh, the uh, oil spills in the Niger Delta, um, uh, the anti-Coca-Cola anti protests in India, you know, Coca-Cola go home, uh, et cetera. I, th I think the, the environmentalism of the poor is largely around basic livelihood and survival, right? And and so that that pushback is already happening uh, in a lot a lot of these other parts of the world, uh, even if even if we don't see it. So I think part of how we think of environmentalism and its intersection with terrorism potentially, or sorry, climate change and its intersection with terrorism potentially has to take that into account as well. Is that it's not going to play out the same in rich countries as it will in in some of these countries where there's already a lot of agitation around um, the impacts of climate change. 
I think that's a very important point. I don't think in, I mean, stand aside from climate change issues, I don't think we've been very good altogether in when we think about terrorism, recognizing uh, national and cultural uh, and regional context to make sense of it. We tended to try to look at it from perspectives, it seems to me, that we know about rather than the ones that somebody else knows about where it's all happening. And that, I think, it, I think that's been one of the major weaknesses in our international response to things. But thanks for that. I'm going to go back to Andrew now just to round things off and just to kind of pick up on. So first of all, Andrew, are there, are there any threads you want to pick up on? Yeah, thanks, Max. I, I, I think one of the ones is, is, is one that has come up in a lot of people's comments here, and it's, it's the question of how we think about the causes of terrorism. Uh, and climate change is really forcing us to, to, to recognize that the causes of terrorism work at different levels and work in different ways in different contexts. Um, and we can look at climate change as a, as a macro level cause if we want, along with some of the big factors, or we can think about it in terms of meso, uh, in terms of how it influences an ideology, or the micro level, when, when we, we often talk about individual radicalization and what were the factors that push and pull a person into a particular pathway. But the key takeaway is that, you know, this is complicated uh, and, and causes, you know, inverted commas, work in different ways, in different contexts, and we have to be sophisticated in how we think about them if we want to, want to understand how they have an impact in the real world and, and on violence. And I think the issue about different regions are going to have different experiences here is absolutely crucial because the indications are that some regions are, are literally going to go on fire um, uh, as a result of this. Sub-Saharan Africa looks like it is, it is heading for a world of pain. Southeast Asia has enormous problems coming its way. And in, in contrast, a lot of the richer parts of the world, developed economies are, are, are not going to experience those types of problems. They'll experience other types of problems. And for example, one of the questions we get asked about is, you know, what, what will the impact of climate change be on eco-terrorism? Uh, you know, and eco-terrorism primarily being of an interest in, in developed economies at the moment, not much of an impact so far. Um, it, it, it's surprisingly quiet, um, certainly vastly more quiet than we see, for example, in, in relation to eco-fascism. So, you know, climate change is, is forcing us to, to, to face up to a lot of these questions. We don't have answers uh, for many of them right now, but but it's important to 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 begin to to think about them and, and to realize that these are issues, um, and they are issues that are likely to become more and more important as we go forward. Can I can I press you a little bit, Andrew, and just say, um, yeah, these are the things we need to do. Um, where should we? Where should the effort go? What what are the what are the things that our future terrorism studies workers should really look at as being you know the areas that will matter well again the part of the problem we have and this is this is a, a long-term problem in terrorism studies the questions that get asked are the questions that are of interest to to basically the the, the funders and the 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 if you want the, the context around the researchers so what questions are, and who are the funders? The funders are basically the rich countries and, and their governments, and they're interested in the issues that directly have an impact on them. So if I was to go to the Home Office in the UK and say, we need to do research on climate change because this is a big problem, it's going to get worse, the part that they're probably going to be most interested in will be ecofascism and the impact on climate activism. Uh, and I'm kind of going, sub-Saharan Africa is about to fall apart, and they're kind of saying, well, that's not, that's not our concern, and, and the foreign come with office and say we've got no money for anything on that. And, and that's going to be a, a common story. I think the governments tend to be, you know, a bit unfair, but tend to be interested in problems once they start to bite. Um, a lot of governments recognize climate change as a strategic threat. Um, they're not really thinking about climate change in terms of terrorism just yet. Um, but maybe that's going to change over the next, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. We'll wait and see. But I think for, from one of the challenges we have is recognizing the environment in which this research is taking place and, and flagging the questions which are important because far more people are going to die in sub-Saharan Africa as a result of this than are going to die in Western Europe, um, at least in the next you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, 
But that doesn't mean that the issues um, aren't important issues and we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be trying to tackle with them. Um, my feeling is, is, is that the greatest harm in relation to climate change and terrorism <coughs> in relation to how climate change accelerates existing drivers of, of terrorist conflict in different parts of the world, um, rather than in how it mobilizes the far right or um, uh, environmental activism or, or, or other factors like that, at least for the, the short to medium term. Um, but I could be wrong. And, and one of the things we, 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 we hope that this special issue encourages is more research and more people engaging with, with these issues because we badly need it. Um, can, before just signing off, can I just ask you, Brian or Amnarath or Ashton, do you, do you want to add anything to this? Do you want to say anything about these issues? Um, I'll just add maybe one quick comment to Andrew's point about uh, the funders who fund things that bite. <laughs> um, there's there's this really good book uh, by Rob Nixon called the Slow Slow Violence, right? And and one of the points he makes is that the environmentalism is not this kind of thing, catastrophic events that things go bang, that you can actually trace a, trace causal mechanisms to, that this happened on Tuesday and it caused this on Thursday. Um, and, and so things that happen in the 80s, you might see consequences of them in the 2000s, right? They're not, they're not time bound, they're not event bound, uh, they're not border, restricted by borders, et cetera. And so for, for things that require funding or attention, sometimes you have to make those causal arguments it's, this is important to be funded because of this happening. And that's much easier to make if you have things like ecofascism and you can say, hey, this guy picked up a gun and went to went to a store. Uh, and that's that's why we need money to fight it, right? Whereas this thing like, oh, there was a forest fire in California and there was smog in Vancouver a week later. It's like, you know, everyone's snoring. Um, and, and so I think I think we're kind of inhibited by the very nature of the violence, quote unquote, that we see when it comes to environmentalism that we're we're kind of almost prone to not pay attention to it because it happens very slowly over time in other parts of the world, et cetera. Brian, you want to say something? Uh, yeah, um, I, I think um, building off of what Amar uh, and Andrew uh, have said, uh, you know, um, political action uh, is, is moved by uh, democratic pressures and it um, operates within the horizons of our leaders' political imaginations. Uh, so when we look at the way that climate change is going to exact the worst impact on the poorest and most vulnerable areas uh, of our globe, I think that's when understanding eco-fascism as uh, something in the register uh, of the imagination uh, becomes so salient. Uh, this is something that really can uh, motivate not just terrorism, but it, it, it's part of the um, collective imagination that um, moves um, democratic political pressure, and it um, helps draw those uh, draw that horizon, that imaginative horizon that our our leaders operate within, uh, which is why I think it's all the more important to to fully understand it, uh, so that it can be picked apart. I find it a bit difficult at the moment to know what imaginative horizon our leaders are actually working in. Uh, but it, it doesn't strike me as being quite tuned well, into some of the issues we've been talking about now. But anyway, that's another issue. Ashton, I could I, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think we all could probably. Ashton, would you like to just add anything before we yeah, run Yeah, thank you. I will add some of the points that um, Brian and I um, discuss but also I would like to say I've just started presenting this paper recently to like law enforcement and intelligence officers and it is becoming something they're like oh I've never thought about this before but now you mention it <laughs> I think we need to start looking into this more um, so we really argue that obviously circumstances differ depending on the country that you're looking at and the impacts of climate change there and every government and practice is different but the effective prevention needs to be through a collaborative effort of neighbouring state authorities and local government bodies, um, not just to identify, eliminate and minimise um, climate change, but also the causes and consequences and potential ways they could be manipulated by bad actors. And we discuss, obviously, that whilst we don't think that climate change necessarily creates terrorists, it does alter the context in which organisations can operate leading to groups obviously being able to exploit that to grow and rise 
and we make a case for large scale policy and enforcement measures being needed to mitigate the negative impacts of not just endemic poverty and things like migration, um, but these wider socioeconomic and political issues that are enabling organisations to exploit climate change for their own end. And this generally involves further guidance on international climate and environmental treaties as well. So lots of like big things that I can't actually do anything about that I can advise other people do, as usual with my job. Okay, thank you. Um, can I uh, thank all of you for coming in and talking? Uh, really, really interesting, challenging stuff. I don't think any of us have got a, a, a clear direction. Andrew, what do you think? Um, well, well, Max, I, I just wanted to say thanks to you and to the team at TPV for, for hosting this special issue and for the support that you've given uh, in relation to its development. Um, I think it's a fantastic home for the special issue, absolutely appropriate. And uh, I just wanted to, to, to say that on behalf of um, the editors and, um, and all the contributors. That's very kind. Thanks. Thanks. We don't often get praise. More often we get shouted out for asking people to review papers. So it's very nice to get something back to return. Uh, I've enjoyed this. I hope you have. Uh, let me remind our listeners that uh, there are, in fact, 10 papers to read in this special issue, not just three. Um, and it really does cover a wide range of issues. Um, any potential graduate students looking for things to do, I'd say you will find this really, really fruitful. So. On behalf of the editors, thank you very much for taking part in this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again, Max. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast.